my privilege to preach here at the chapel this morning. This has been my home church for over 30 years now. That's uh, remarkable to me. But you who know me well are likely aware of the fact that uh, I'm losing my ability to come up with the right words, like your name, <laughs> like things that I've known my whole life. That reality suggests that my preaching days may be short, perhaps over, I hope not. In light of that, I want to return to um, an important passage for me, John chapter 15. Um, we'll look at the first eight verses today. This is the first text I ever preached. A passage which has had a profound impact on my life over the years. A passage that I have pondered deeply and preached boldly. But a passage which continues to enlighten me even today. So let me read the text. John chapter 15 verses 1 to 8. You'll find that on page 1071 in the Pew Bibles. Jesus is speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branches cannot bear fruit by itself, neither can it abide, neither, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This text has many truths that I can, so many truths I can never fit them all into one sermon. But I do want to set before you two things this morning. Two truths. The first is this. Only Jesus can connect you to God. Only Jesus can connect you to God. Over the years, I've lived in lots of places, and everywhere I've lived, a familiar old adage seems to be uh, true. That it's not what you know, but who you know. In other words, you need to have the right connections. That's just how things work. But here Jesus says that only he can connect you to God. This passage picks up Jesus' instruction to his disciples 
on the night that he was betrayed. Jesus and his disciples had left the upper room, and now uh, his teaching continues as they walk toward the, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. That explains why Jesus mentions the vine, I suspect. Vineyards were everywhere in the countryside, so the sight of many of those vines would have inevitably be uh, visible to, the, to Jesus and his disciples and could have been the occasion of his teaching. But most likely, as they walked through the temple area, Jesus looked down through the temple courtyard and saw the emblem of a vine. For a great vine was carved on the massive doors of the holy place. That carved vine on the temple door was very significant. For you see, the vine had become a national symbol of the Jews' connection to God. It began centuries earlier as one prophet after another pictured Israel as God's vine. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, and the Psalms all used this ancient metaphor. For example, in Isaiah 5, we read, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. So when Jesus brought up this vine metaphor, he was raising a loaded subject. In Israel, the vine was not just another fruit tree. Just as a bald eagle is not just another bird in these parts. Just as the red, white, blue are not three random colors in America. In Israel, even their coins bore a picture of the vine, the emblem of Israel's national life. For to the Israelites, the vine was the symbol that they were the people connected to God. But against all that loaded backdrop of history, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the true vine. Literally, he says, I am the vine, the true. His grammar makes a point of the contrast between the vine that has gone before and the true vine, which he is. Do you grasp the impact of Jesus' statement? The Jews knew that they were God's true chosen vine. God's attention, his labor, his care was focused on them. They were the chosen people, the people bound by God in covenant. If anyone wanted to come to the true God, he had to come through the Jewish people, through Israel. And now Jesus was saying, to be part of the Jewish vine was not enough. Using the phrase, I am, the, the name that the Lord calls himself, the I am. Jesus says, I am. I am. The, the vine. Jesus claims that he, no longer the nation Israel, was the true vine of God. In other words, if anyone would be connected to Yahweh, the great I am, the God of the Bible... He must be connected to the true vine. 
Here Jesus is claiming that all the promises made to God's people will not come by being a Jew, but by being connected to Jesus, God's true vine. And he's claiming that God the Father, the divine gardener, is no longer focused on the Jewish nation as God's vineyard, but on the true vine, the Lord Jesus, and those branches connected to him. Now the Father prunes and cares for them that they might be fruitful. And it's still true today. Jesus alone connects us to God. That night as Jesus walked toward Gethsemane, he knew what a struggle his followers were about to have. He knew that it would be tough for them to follow him. To keep trusting in their relationship to him in the face of opposition. So he made the issue clear for them and for us. Connection to Jesus is the only connection that matters. He is the true vine who alone connects you to God. So what connections do you have this morning? You need to be in right relationship with God. You need his forgiveness. You need new life, eternal life. You need to find the blessedness of living in right relationship with your creator. You need the care of the divine gardener who feeds and cares for the vine. What connection do you have? You may say, well, I'm a pretty good person, better than most. Well, I suspect you are, but that's not enough. Only Jesus can connect you to God. Or you may say, well, my father was an elder in the church for 50 years. And my grandfather, the minister before him. That's great. What a wonderful heritage. But it means nothing unless you yourself are connected like a branch growing in Jesus, the vine. Only Jesus can connect you to God. Someone else might say, hold on a minute. Not only was I born in a Christian home and baptized as a child, I went 12 years to Christian school. I learned the catechism. uh, catechism, I made profession of faith. I, I I went to a Christian college, and as an adult, I've done everything that there is to do in church. I certainly qualify as one properly connected to God. Not necessarily. You've got lots of connections, all right, but unless you are personally connected in living relationship to Jesus, the true vine, you really have nothing. Only Jesus can connect us to God. You see, it's impossible to overstate the impact of Jesus' statement when he says, I am the vine. Everyone has connections which define who we are and where hopes lie. But this morning, I tell you, only one connection matters. Our connection to Jesus. For only Jesus can connect you to God. So what's the point of this? 
Well, it's not just an elitist exclusivism which has crept into Christianity. No, God had a clear purpose in mind. Which brings us to our second point. God calls us to abide in him. God calls us to abide in him. I first spoke on John 15 as a high school senior who had been asked to speak at another church's youth group. Since then, I've worked on this passage many times and pointed out many truths found there. The fact that God wants his vineyard to produce fruit, the fact that God cuts off branches that do not produce, and the fact that God prunes branches that do in order that they're even more fruitful. There are many truths set forth in this passage. But this week, as I began to work on this passage, I realized that I have never really addressed the issue that troubled me the most when I was 17. Not till now. The key word in this whole passage has to be the word abide. Abide. That word is mentioned 10 times in the first 10 verses of John 15. You can't ignore a word that's mentioned 10 times in your text. In Bible study, the actual words matter. Scholars write books on the significance of a single word. But abide is really a wimpy word. (laughs) If, If we're looking for words to define Jesus' followers, I can think of many words better than abide. For example, it seems that Christ's servants should be smart and bold and persistent and creative and winsome and confident and dozens of other things. Every headhunter recruiter could give us many more impressive character traits that we have to have. But Jesus mentions one trait. To be characteristic of his disciples, that they abide in him. That they simply remain, stay, wait, dwell, all those little words, in short, abide in him. And the verb tense used is normally the present tense, which means generally it describes repeated or recurring things going on all the time. So Jesus holds before us this trait to be repeatedly, continually, characteristically abiding in him. Or we might say to stick it out or to stay the course or to persevere or to remain steadfast and faithful or to endure without yielding or to keep on abiding But you know, that's been God's standard throughout the scriptures. Abide in me. For example, 
In Samuel, chapter 1 Samuel 16, God sent his prophet Samuel out to the house of Jesse, the father of many grown sons, to find God's chosen leader, God's king to be. Well, you can imagine Jesse the father was pretty impressed. I'm sure he brought his most impressive, talented son right up front. Here we go. Here we go, Samuel. But after considering him, Samuel said, the Lord's not chosen this one. Oh. Well, Jesse brought another son. And then another. And then another one after another to be considered and again and again the son after son Samuel said the Lord has not chosen this one to what Samuel said aren't there any other sons <laughs> I mean, God sent him here isn't there anybody else? To which Jesse replied, oh, no, only the youngest. Uh, the kid, he's out taking care of the sheep. Finally, when it, finally Samuel said, send him in. I'll wait. And he did. And when the kid named David came in from the flock, Samuel said, he's the one, and anointed him to be Israel's king. I'm sure that was really impressive. I'm sure he was better than all the other sons, but I'm sure Jesse's father was dumbfounded. He knew his sons. He knew David was just well, the kid, <laughs> but he was God's choice. But we know exactly what David was doing while tending the sheep. David is the poster boy for godly young men abiding in Christ. He tells us himself, his father probably didn't know this. He tells himself, what abiding in the Lord meant for him. He wrote it down. It went like this. What does it mean to abide in the Lord? Well, this is how Jesse's son would say it. It means the Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for he's with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Oh, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
David's family may have been baffled that he was selected. By what it means to abide in the Lord. Abide in the Lord. But we shouldn't be baffled. We have David's own description. Abide in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 1, the Lord gives us another example. Another description of what abiding in him looks like. The Apostle Paul played it back to the faithful folks in Corinth. He wrote to them, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise or human by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. So that, and, and the things that are nothing to nullify the things that are something. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Here again, we see God does not need impressive people who can officially and skillfully accomplish everything that God needs doing. No, God is able to use the least likely people in the world. But only if they are continually connected to him, listening to him, obeying him, depending on him, giving him the glory, abiding, abiding in him. And so as that passage explains, God chooses people who seem to have no significant qualities People who seem to be nobodies, but they're useful to God as they simply abide in him. Let me suggest one more example. In Acts chapter 9, we read of God striking down his enemy, Saul of Tarsus, on the road, Saul, who was busy destroying Christ's disciples. Now God is about to tell Saul of Tarsus what he has in store for him. And so God gets out his phone directory, as we would call it perhaps, looking for a faithful Christian that he can send to contact God's enemy who wants to kill Christians. In fact, there's some Christians that had already been killed by this man. Well, the Lord has a disciple named Ananias. What great things have, has he done? We don't know any. 
But the Lord knows that Ananias simply abides, trusts, obeys the Lord. So the Lord called for Ananias and he said, I want you to go to this address. And he handed me the address and asked for a man named Saul of Tarsus. Lay hands on him and restore his sight. And Ananias says, Lord, I know about this man. He's trying to destroy your disciples. I think the Lord put that statement in here just so that we understand that Ananias knew exactly what God was asking him to do. He didn't get hoodwinked and just suddenly found himself in a situation. God told him. But the Lord went on to say, oh, I know all about him. I know who that Saul of Tarsus is. I've chosen him. End of discussion. Ananias responds. How would you respond? Probably argue with the Lord for a few weeks. Question his wisdom. Ananias got up. Went and found the house, the address that the Lord had given him. And did exactly what God told him to do. Saul's Blindness was healed. He was filled with God's Holy Spirit. Ananias baptized him. And Saul, the Christian killer, became the Apostle Paul. We don't know anything else about Ananias. He simply obeyed. And what we learn is that God doesn't keep a list of specialized people that he can send to this problem or that problem. He simply calls his disciples to abide in him. Day after day, year after year, throughout life. Abide. Abide. And when we do so, we become confident of the Lord, in the Lord. So that even when he seemingly asks impossible tasks, well, God has his people, you, me, willing and ready to trust and obey him, no matter what we have to do. Jesus calls us simply, faithfully, to abide in him. Abide in him. Two simple but profound truths this morning. Of all that could be said in this passage. Two simple truths. Only God can connect you. Only Jesus can connect you to God. Whatever other connections you may have, they're worth nothing. Jesus connects you to God. And secondly, Jesus calls us to abide in him. It seems so simple, but abiding in Jesus is the essence of being useful to, to the Lord. It seems that almost every day I read 
of Christians in difficult places in the world. Christians who stand firm confessing Christ. Christians who will not stop sharing the gospel. Christians who suffer, who are often imprisoned, tortured, or killed because of their witness. So how do they endure such persecution? Most of them are poor. Mostly they live in simple circumstances. Almost none of them have much Bible training. How can they be faithful when the cost is so high? They don't ask for that persecution. They may not even see that coming. But God calls them and us to simply abide in him. Being faithful in the mundane daily tasks of trusting and obeying the Lord. And then continuing to trust and obey him for things impossible, even when the cost of discipleship seems unbelievable. Perhaps death. May God find us abiding in him. No matter what the cost. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we can speak of in you and to trust you and you alone. But you know how fickle we can be. And how we need to learn that over and over and over. Until if we were by ourselves with no one around to hear or to impress, just thinking about life, we might say something like, the Lord's my shepherd. I don't need anything. Take your word, Lord. We're simply set before us here. And weave it into our hearts that we might live it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.